Informed Ascent, brought to you by Firearm Training Associates. Firearms Training Associates is, is a lucky company because we have been able to draft in some of the best instructors in the world. We have special operations guys, we have guys from the U.S. military, from foreign militaries that work for us. They provide a great deal of insight into self-defense. So we developed this so that our customers could come on the weekends and get the best training in the world. We pride ourselves on our civilian training. It's our armed civilian that's one of the most important things to us. We want to teach them how to survive dangerous situations. When you come through the course, as long as you're performing at an acceptable level, you're going to get a certificate that puts our stamp on it. And we take it serious when we put our stamp on there. When you get our gold label, that means that you've passed the class that you've attended. Firearm Training Associates, proud sponsor of Informed Descent. Find out more at FTATV.com. Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics, with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Well, Mark, great to be with you for another episode of Informed Dissent. Good to be with you as well. How have things changed for you, and how have you been changed? by the last three years. That's what I want to talk about with tonight's guest, which is Dr. Drew Pinsky, radio personality, someone I actually grew up listening to in the 80s with Loveline, uh, with uh, great uh, fanfare, and his uh, co-host, uh, Adam Carolla, who is still with him uh, on one of his many shows. Uh, he is the host of the Dr. Drew Show, the Dr. Drew Podcast, and about three or four others. Welcome to Informed Descent, Dr. Drew Pinsky. It is my Pleasure and privilege, gentlemen. Uh, this is going to be good. I have been talking to you now for on and off for a few years. You've you've been kind enough to invite me to your show three or four times. We just spoke recently on your live podcast uh, just a few days ago. Yeah. And I warned you, and you accepted the challenge, that I would be asking you some very personal questions about your transformation yeah. in the last few years. I'm a psychiatrist. I love stories of transformation. I've been transformed in the last three years, some for the good, not always for the good, some for the worst, but I hope in the net for the good. And you have, I know, changed a lot because we've talked about that on and off the air in your studio when I was invited to speak to you. And I am very curious to learn more about what you have believed or thought about or accepted that you've now shifted away from and and specifically regarding people in our society, because that's really what, what you talk about a lot on your show. That's, that's something that I'd like to hear something about. Uh, please share with us. I guess, you know, I, I also shared with Mark that I was in therapy for so many years that if you put that head on and bring me into that space of attunement, I immediately can slip into a, a almost a hypnotic state. So who knows what I will say. Except to say, I'm no, I, I guess I have changed, but more importantly, my view of history has changed. My view of people has changed. I still, what I explained to you the other day is I still spend a lot of time going, I don't, I, what? I can't, I don't understand. I can't believe it. Uh, what's going on here? And I'm guessing that some of that at least is a defense. And my suspicion is, I told you the other day, that it's a defense against anger and rage or something like that. Um, uh, or really, you know, as I sit and think about it here today, uh, an unwillingness to accept how people are. You know, I've read history my whole life, right? And uh, 
I never expected to bear witness to the kinds of social horrors that gripped much of the 20th century and the latter part of the 19th century. And yet when uh, when COVID was underway and it was the dark winter, the nuclear winter of lockdown, I went to try to get a vaccine from the hospital where I've worked for 40 years and was uh, held at the door uh, with a, a steely-eyed young man in a, in a um, I want to say a para, paratrooper uniform, but essentially a, a security guard uniform. And uh, I was like, I, I've, I made an appointment. I was coming in for the vaccine. Thankfully, I didn't get it. But, but uh, at the time, I wanted to get the vaccine. It seemed like a good idea to me. I was taking care of COVID patients. And finally, he let me in through the sliding glass door, and he slips behind the desk and uh, started, started. this is a 27-year-old dude, started screaming at me, where are your papers? Literally, those were the words coming out of his mouth. And I was like, "My, I, you're looking at the screen. I signed up for this. You don't have the right papers. Where are your papers? Screaming at me. And I just, and the thought bubble over my head was, is this this feel good to talk to a senior physician this way? Somebody who's been here for 40 years, you've been here for five minutes, and this is something gratifying to you? And I thought, and and that 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 experience played in my head over and over again, and to this day continues to play. And I think, oh, that's that's how these things happen. That's how people become prison guards. That's how people become do things that they wouldn't do in other circumstances. And it was a real lesson for me. I, I would call myself naive prior to that day. That was like an aha moment for you. I didn't think it could happen again. I thought that was some sort of weird anachronism of history or the culture of that those countries at that moment. And people got swept into... Th- I, I didn't know what I really thought about it. It, it seemed like so otherworldly to me. And there it was right in front of me. And I thought, oh, that's... There it is. That's how this happens. He He... he and to this moment, I can't understand how people liked, seemed to enjoy, how the government of Cal- governor of California seemed to like telling us what to do. And the minion here, the, the Barbara Ferrers and stuff, seemed to like, enjoy uh, just having their way with the populace. Sadism. And it was equally as mysterious to me as how the people that just went along with it without asking any questions... Th- that was equally as mysterious to me. And Masochism. You're describing Nazi Germany, Drew. It's unfortunately I'm describing South Pasadena, and, <laughs> and, so, and, and, so, and, to, and to watch the 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 um, people enjoy putting on the talismans and enjoy uh, sort of uh, cooperating or, or or falling in line with this extraordinary. Um, demands uh, and giving up their freedoms like that. I mean, words like freedom and courage and um, some other words that these these words were not in my lexicon, and now they're on a daily basis. I'm thinking about these things. Freedom and courage. I, those were sort of courage was something that medieval knights worried about, and freedom was something we had established in, in 1790. And all of a sudden, these became major concerns of mine. That's a that's a Massive change. That's a change. That's huge, especially for you because you took it for granted for so long. Oh, completely naive, I'd say. Naive. Why, why did you choose not to get vaccinated? Well, so running around the hospital that day trying to get vaccinated, I couldn't get the vaccine because I wasn't a hospital employee. 
And I didn't come from a risk community. Those are the only people they were willing to give the vaccine to on that particular day. In spite of me saying, look, I, I want to volunteer my time in your tent here, taking care of COVID patients. I take care of COVID patients every day. You need me to be not, I mean, I would think you'd want me not to get COVID. Had to go around the hospital, multiple offices, no ventilation. I thought, ah, oh, this is how I'm going to get COVID. 48 hours later, I had COVID. And so once I got COVID and I had a nasty, I had a bad go of it, which I do with all viruses. I always, and, and vaccines, I do poor with anything viral. I just really, it's not my, my system is. Was that when you, was that when you, when you first uh, had me on your show a few years ago and you were kind of in the post at the, the, the late stage of your hallucinations and you were kind of cognitively impaired and you were yelling at your wife back and forth. And I was like, what's going on? And you said, I just am recovering from an infection. Was that it when that happened? Be. It could be. That sounds like how I was behaving. So I had more neurological effects than I realized. Thank you for pointing that out to me at the time, by the way. Uh, but, but irritability was probably was something I was experiencing right about then, so that makes perfect sense. And, um, yeah, I had, I had a bad, bad. And monoclonal antibodies kept me out of the hospital, frankly. And, um, and, and no one was talking about monoclonal antibodies, and I sort of made it my mission to – I, I, at that point, I thought, why is public health not educating people about how to manage COVID? What to ask your doctor for? What about Decadron? What about Budesonide? What about Fluvoxamine? What about monoclonal antibodies? Silence. And no. And when I went public with it, people went, oh, you're special. You could afford it. I went, it's free. The government had bought 800,000 doses. You just ask your doctor, a nurse will show up at your door and administer the monoclonal antibody. And that was when it was uh, bamlanivimab, if I remember right. And it worked like crazy. Literally, the um, the colors in the room I was in at the time started brightening while I was getting the infusion. It was crazy. And the, and the nurse said, you know, that's he's here, he heard that all day long. But so, so I got COVID. Then um, I thought, well, now I'm immune. I'm fine. So let's travel. And so we were going to go to Greece, but I couldn't get out of the United States without a vaccine. So I took the uh, J&J vaccine because I assumed I would have a terrible reaction. And I thought, well, better I have one reaction. Indeed, I did have a horrible reaction. And on day two, I woke up with a spontaneous raccoon's eye, which is the presenting manifestation of the transverse sinus thrombosis that is the dreaded complication of the J&J. And I looked in the mirror that morning and went, oh, I'm going to be the only male to get this transverse sinus thrombosis and i just thought man it's it's happening it's either gonna go or it's not gonna go and i got no other neurological symptoms or anything and it seemed to resolve spontaneously but i was on my way to a consumptive coagulopathy thank you to the uh, jnj vaccine and so that was it for the vaccines for me i was then i got COVID again about it, i got some it was clearly omicron because i had a cough i wasn't aware i was sick i didn't really realize i had COVID until i infected my entire family so then I then I realized it was COVID again. So that's my COVID journey. Wow. Well, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. And and all the way along, I think, Mark, I think the reason I f you and I started talking is I became preoccupied with the delusional, hysterical quality of the general public. I, you know, I, at the time I was thinking in this country, I didn't realize how much it had affected the entire world, at least the Western world. It was just so shocking to me. And I thought, what, what is this? And you were talking about, 
the mass formation concept. And I thought, well, that that fits. Mass delusional psychosis, which was the subject or theme of my first book, which is, I think, what we talked about on the show initially. Yep. And, and, I, and I thought, well, that that fits. But I, if you remember, I was asking lots of questions about well, what, you know, what is it about the evolution of our character constructs in this country that set us up for this? I, I, we've, you know, I, I watched the narcissistic turn in real time. The narcissism came, cluster B at very minimum came on. And I would argue primary narcissism was sort of the, at the center of it, which it of course would be with the cluster B. Um, but hysterics, I, I, I didn't see, you know, back when I, I worked in a psychiatric hospital for 35 years and, uh, I didn't see a lot of histrionic. That was sort of the rarest of the cluster B that we saw. And now all of a sudden I thought, well, have we just, all move that direction? Is that is that what we're doing? What what the hell? Cluster B meaning like borderlines and uh, people that have these these personality disorders that we run into them all the time in our in our day to day life. We just don't necessarily recognize them unless we have the training. And they're manipulative and they're you know passive aggressive and they they go from hot and cold you know in one one second. Very very difficult to deal with uh, that type of personality defect or personality disorder. Did. This is something that I, I've wondered about, and I have my own thoughts about it. I'm curious to hear yours. Right. You just said you noticed, and I noticed it too. I wrote a book about it. This sort of craziness, cluster B and delusional manifestations of and, and, and this kind of hysteria. Hysteria. That, hysteria that, that you, you know, you hear Freud writing about it in Victorian times. You know, the hysteria was really the, yeah. the crisis du jour of Victorian times, mostly women. And then it went away because yep. it was definitely societally induced. Do you think that the craziness that you saw, that I saw, that you know, Jeff saw, we've all seen it, that manifested you know, mid to late 2020, all the way through and to some degree, even, even now, do you think that that, that constitutes a, an underlying change in the people that surround us in our society? Or do you think that it was always there, that these people haven't changed at all, but it was just revealed because of the, the powers and pressures that were placed on us beginning in mid 2020 i think the 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 predominant mechanism was a reveal i think that's yeah, the predominant i think so too mechanism and, and i think i told you i wrote a book on narcissism you know 15 years ago now or more than that and i wanted to put a chapter i could i was wondering where in history this kind of turn had happened and the only mo sort of modern-esque version I could find was pre-revolutionary France. And I wanted to write about it and was told it was too speculative. I said, you know, I, I, I told the, the editors, I'm like, look, there's going to be guillotines. There's going to there's be scapegoating. I know it. I know once narcissism comes a predominant style, the aggression and the narcissistic rage and the envy, they will destroy each other if they don't start scapegoating the one you know somebody else out there i didn't know about social media and cancellation at the time but when i saw the cancellation stuff hit i thought well here it is were you canceled at all on social media oh man <laughs> I can't, I, i'm getting used to getting canceled I, I, <laughs> I was canceled severely for you know it what you let me i learned a lot about cancellation since uh since the some of the worst the 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 worser cancellations that i was subjected to the bad ones um it's never for what you said ever it's always for what somebody says you said always 
and and nobody ever asks for clarification you're not allowed clarification you are condemned and executed without any even if you attempt to clarify your position it will not be heard because of the hysteria it's swept into this thing and um i I don't know how people know how to journalists seem to know how to bring that out in people uh it's astonishing that you know have you ever heard of gelman amnesia no gelman amnesia gelman was a famous physicist like 30 40 years ago and he said he'd when he'd pick up the paper and read it and be a story about physics he'd go my god they're so far from the accurate and the truth this is bullshit and then he'd go on and read the rest of the paper and assume the rest of the paper was completely accurate. That's called Gelman amnesia. It's all bullshit. It's all distorted. <laughs> and you never learn that more than when the story is focused on you. When they turn their their camera or whatever it is, print, it's really print journalism that's the most egregious. When they Because you have some control over you know what you say in, in front of a camera and, and on, a, on a microphone. But when somebody writes what you said, it is profound how far it is from reality and you learn that quickly i i won't i will not do print interviews period and i've had that rule for years uh i was asked to do one i i I was appointed to the lhasa committee that's the committee that uh, allocates resources for homelessness by the chairman of the other county board of supervisors and she had to beg i was like oh my god this sounds no please don't please do it please do it okay i did it uh and by the way i need you to interview with this one woman at the la Times. she's great you can trust her oh my god <laughs> oh my god that was i hadn't done a print interview in probably seven or eight years i will not do another one the la times i had my first and last print interview there a couple of years ago by a man who uh, writes columns. I think he's a business columnist, an editorialist. And he came off as being quite uh, chatty, friendly, uh, amicably disagreeable with me, which is fine. I have no problem with disagreement. Holy crap, when I saw the article that came out, I don't know who he was talking to. It certainly right. didn't look like it was me. That's Complete right. slander. And that's the last time I did it. I, I've, yeah, I've had slander. I've had Mr. Everything, you know, just everything. And so forget it. These, these are not ethical people. They're not uh, worth our time. I, I don't read newspapers anymore because I know how far they are from the truth. I just can't do it. And it's a shame to, to really enjoy reading the New York Times. Let me ask you guys this. You, you both described that this behavior that we all witnessed was a, was a reveal of some underlying pathology and the stress yeah. and the tyranny and the fear really brought this out. Mm. What do we do with that moving forward now that we've agree with that. And I agree with you both. What do we do moving forward when the next crisis, the next uh, tyrannical orders come come marching through? How do we handle this and how do we address the public? How do we prevent this from happening the next time? All I have is my experience at the psychiatric hospital all those years. And I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm an internist. And the only thing that ever worked was Haldol. <laughs> it was, that, even that rarely worked. It was show of force, show of force, not not aggression. We would gather, we'd have a, a code and 10 people would line up around the patient and you would be shocked at how they came. Oh, poor, they go into wounded mode. Oh, I didn't mean anything. It wasn't me. I, blah, blah, blah. And it's boom, like that. 
That is your own. That is the only thing. And you know, I ran a drug treatment center for twenty years also, and we had to do that all the time. With with the drug addicts are a little different because they they just want to use right. They and and you've got to get around them to help them feel contained. But the the character pathology, you get around them to let them know the jig is up. Stop it. You you have to be just stop. And it has to be firm and direct. And it can't. You and I, Mark talked about the rescuing and all the other BS that's going that's on. Right. That harms them. That harms them. You have to get them to stop the bullshit. And that's your only move. That's, that's the only move. And it helps them. It helps them feel glued together when they're unraveling. Am I, am I right? Am I on anything, Mark? You're completely right. This was just discussed on the uh, John Phillips show today as I was driving home about the failures in the homeless and drug substance abuse oh. problem policies up in San Francisco specifically, mm. that it failed and failed and failed. And someone said in the hearing, confronting London Breed, the failed mayor of San Francisco, uh, said to her, we don't need any more rescuing. We don't need any more money. We need a show of force. That's how we're going to solve this problem. You're exactly right. Yeah. And I'm not saying be aggressive. That, that's different. No, no. That's different. It, it, I'm saying containing. Contain force is containing. Containment. It, is yes. author- it is authoritative and containing. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and, it's, and it's sane. And it, and I and I'm not and I'm not it, much and, and people are gonna, you know, it's interesting the people that were asking me for my papers, but were the very same people that were going, you're too authoritative, too authoritarian. I'm not interested in telling you how to live your life. I am not interested. I'm not interested in telling you what to do, but I do know how to keep you glued together when you start unraveling, and th- and th- then you do whichever you do. Then it's up to you. You are free and clear to do as you wish. But when you're running a mock. And your envy and aggression is acting out on other people? No, stop it. So the non-cluster B population has to stand up and say, no, we're not going to go along with this. Jeff, I'm, I'm sorry to say there's, there is no non-cluster B anymore. <laughs> Just, <laughs> we got to go with the mild cluster okay. B. The people with, with functional cluster B have to sort of manage the ones that are really unraveling. And this is all intergenerational trauma. This is all unraveled families. You know, I look, we... <laughs> Some I saw a lecture the other day on some of the the theories that are out there, and the theories it sounded so familiar back to the seventies when they were saying oh, kids are just little sexual beings; they can do whatever they want. If they want to have sex with an adult, they just come out of the adult. And the adult, well, what's the adult supposed to do? The adult is being uh, uh, seduced by this child. The child wants it. There was a lot of that in the seventies. No, no, it is. nothing could be more damaging than shit like that. Well, there's there's a lot of these types of things. So if a minor child decides that they don't want to be the gender that they were born into... Should we stand up and say no to them as well? Well, that's an interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Let me. Uh, I I want in in that situation. You know, Mark and I disagree a little bit on this one. We we had a long talk about it the other day. Um, I I think we would agree on this. I want to empower the parents to work with a doctor to figure out the in the best interest of the child. I worry about some of the doctors. I worry about some of the stuff that's going on but I don't claim to know the right path for a given family. But the fact that that's being taken away from parents mortifies me. Yeah, schools in California, they're passing a law to remove the parents if they disagree with what their child is wanting to do. No, no, not even disagree. Yeah, we accuse the parents of child abuse, but they're empowering the child to get treatment without notifying the parent. Right. No, for sure. I mean, even into adulthood. So 
Dr. Drew, if I if you were a surgeon and I came into you and I said, you know, I think it would be really cool to be a one-armed person and I'd like you to remove my right arm. Believe it or not, people do that. I don't think they do. <laughs> Believe it or not, that happens. It does happen. Well, people I, come in and ask for it, but I don't think surgeons approve it. I, I, I've seen it. I've heard of it being done. I, I You got to understand how um, libertarian I am at heart. I, I, I am really like, hey, a doctor and a patient, they, they, they want to, you know, Joe Rogan's doctor wants to give him a driver. I don't care. Look, I, I don't tell doctors how to practice medicine. I... And concerned about our peers when they are an outlier. I'm very concerned about it. And if we're going to convene some sort of a assessment, I mean, look, you know, I, the, the psychiatric hospital I worked at was like a museum of psychiatry. And when I would walk by the Scientology Museum of Terror on Hollywood Boulevard, which was sort of the, uh, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, there's this huge museum I about the horrors of psychiatry. It's a Scientologist-funded museum. Uh, yeah, but it's but it's about the horrors of psychiatry. Right. I, I walked by that for years, going, eh, eh, there, there's some stuff. They're not so far off because I saw that stuff. I saw. I took care of all the lobotomy patients. I took care of all the singulotomy patients. I had patients with with um, shunts in so they could get dialysis of their evil humors out for their chronic schizophrenia. I saw cold shock, influenza shock, parainfluenza shock, insulin shock, and electric shock. This was a museum. There, we did terrible things in, in psychiatry uh, in the name, in an attempt to do good, pulling teeth out to get rid of the bacteria that are infecting the brain. You know, uh, there's a lot of stuff that we just got way, 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 way wrong. And, and you know, one of the the astonishing things to me is when uh, what's his name won the the uh, Nobel Prize for the frontal lobotomy, and it became a bedside procedure. Happened right at the hospital where I work. Wow. I took care of the patients in their 70s and 80s. Catastrophes. Um, neurosurgeons looked at that and went, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. And they backed away. They didn't They didn't come in and go, you cannot do this to people. They just backed away. And so I am not I, – I saw all that, and I thought, well, I don't want to be that guy that just backs away when I know something is really, really, really wrong. But I, at the same time, I don't – I don't want to get too involved with other people's practices. And, you know, we as we as a system need to uh, deal with that. I don't as an individual want to get too involved. With well, that. well, listen, Mark and I spent uh, an evening with Riley Gaines at Godspeak Church. And one of the lines that had an impact on me is she said, you know, I didn't speak up at first because I thought somebody else would speak up on my behalf. And I think 100 years from now, they're going to look back at us. Just like we look back a hundred years previous, it's possible, and we wonder how how the hell did you guys put leeches on people's bodies and do the things that you did that we now look back on in amazement? And I think they may look back on us and say, "You you did what with minor children? You called these things top surgeries and bottom surgeries? How dare you? And how could you have done that?" It's entirely possible. It's entirely. I am. I am. Maybe I'm overwhelmed by the um, the way this is being done now, and the evidence that's the 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 so-called uh, you know sort of uh, amount of evidence that's being used. I I care that people thrive. I want them to do well. I want them to end up in the right place. That's all I care about. 
How, how they get there, I, I'm agnostic. Have you had Riley Gaines on your show yet? I don't think I have. So uh, we, we should connect you because okay. I agree with you from a societal standpoint. It's it's society that should be dealing with this. And as an individual, you have little uh, impact, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but you're not just an individual. You've got a national voice and people respect you and look up to you. And I think it's important that you hear her story and other people's stories so you can speak out, speak out on, on behalf of those who believe and stay silent because they think somebody else is going to speak up. Well, I'll tell you the one part I would speak up about is I, I do not understand what we're doing to women. I don't understand. We're saying at one hand they don't exist, uh, and on the other hand, uh, we are saying that they should have equality in all respects, and yet, when it comes to supporting women's athletics as such, it seems like we're undermining it. So I, I don't, I worry about that. And that I would say I'm very concerned about. She's a great speaker about that from a personal point of view. You know, a national champion, number two in the nation in collegiate women's swimming, who was beaten by a mediocre 457th ranked man who just jumped in out of nowhere and took every title from the. 100 meter to the 20 mile. I will make a prediction that that I, that Joe Rogan made that that I share with him as a concern. Somehow that's going to get in an octagon and somebody's going to get really hurt, like really hurt. Then maybe we'll start to talk about this. That that's what I think is going to happen and I'm profoundly concerned about that. There are people that are, you know, not physically hurt, but those those poor women that work their entire life and were displaced because of a man who was competing against them. And they missed their opportunity to swim at nationals. They missed their opportunity to end up in the Olympics. Their entire career and their dreams were destroyed uh, because we, the adults in the room, allowed a man to compete against women. Is the is the Olympic Committee allowing that now? Didn't, didn't they hear that they took issue with that? They're, they're, they're actually blocking it, allowing this to, to spread into the Olympics. But it's, it's likely to spread at some point. I mean, the recent uh, winner of the Miss Netherlands beauty pageant is a guy, and he's going into the Miss Universe pageant. So beauty pageants are now over for women. You know, there was one, you should be aware, that the, the Miss USA had one, uh, and that was Trump's organization. And he supported a trans, a trans female, and and he supported her going on to the uh, the international competition. Oh, interesting! Very interesting. That is interesting. I did not know that. No, and that was like 10, 12 years ago, something like that. When he comes on your show, you'll have to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's comical? I judged the Miss USA contest, uh, not that one, but it was probably fourteen years ago or something. And I was like, they asked me about it. I'm like, ah, come on, you know. And they go, well, your dinner partners will be Donald Trump and Martha Stewart. I said, I'm in. <laughs> oh, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> well, it was. It was really, really fascinating. And uh, and Melania and Donald Trump sat right behind me. I was at the, the judges thing. They were literally directly behind me the whole the whole show. Oh, interesting. And it was so. Here's a little piece of funny thing about him. So Miss Missouri had the whole thing in the bag, and and I promised myself I would not push somebody through who gagged on the question, who didn't seem like able to get up there and answer, you know, a, a reasonable, uh, thoughtful. Uh, uh, response to you know these these questions. Shatner was the host of this thing. It was in Gary, Indiana, 
and Miss Missouri just gaffed on it. And uh, we all sat there. Was, we were all kind of upset about it. And it, was, it was a very nerve wracking kind of thing. And I sat back and I heard, and I kind of looked behind me and there's Trump and he goes, how's that possible? How do people do that? <laughs> How does she choke? How, what, is, what does that mean when people choke? Like the concept of choking, he couldn't get in his head. It was really funny. <laughs> he was like, he was like, what was that? She had it in the bag. That and sounds she, like something he would say, right? The can't understand. What's choking. wrong with her? <laughs> right? What's wrong with her? She had it. <laughs> wow! What an experience. What, what an experience. One of, what, one of his uh, his greatest strengths uh, that makes him so uh, so entertaining is that he often says things that that are so obvious that people are not willing to say. And he points things out, and that would be a good example of that. Where some people might be more diplomatic, or they might be so more reassuring. What the hell? Who does that? <laughs> and you know, at dinner, Martha Stewart was a, such a she is a bri- obviously brilliant woman. It just comes it comes right across to you. And at the time at dinner, she was talking about these stock option plans that she was putting together because she was so grateful to her employees for having built this thing late in life that she really didn't expect to ever do. And she wanted the employees to share in it. That was what sent her to prison. I didn't know that. Well, it was that is the 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 process she went through to get that done that some t didn't get cross you know how it is like with malpractice if you don't dot every i cross every t they can find something yeah they'll they'll get you are you still practicing medicine yeah i'm doing just outpatient stuff now it's mostly geriatric patients i've followed for 20 years and things i you know a day doesn't go by that i'm not asked to at least make a do an assessment of drug addict, alcoholic, something, you know, sort of help people along because it's, it's a confusing landscape for people right now. And You're in California? Southern California, yeah. Me too. I'm in Orange County. Um, any concerns about the medical board and how they've uh, presented themselves as the arbiter of truth? Yeah. Well, I urge you to look at the thread from the testimony, I think, yesterday. This is AB 2098, which is essentially giving the giving the medical board the authority to punish us in any way they deem appropriate if we misspeak on the topic of covid as they see it the board you know mark mark and i are plaintiffs in that case it's actually called mcdonald versus lawson drew oh my god thank you <laughs> but did you see the the testimony against you know the the california attorney the judge seemed to not want any of this. Judge was like, why are we, if you can tell doctors what to say to their patients as it pertains to this illness, why not any other? Why are we limiting it to COVID? Why, what's so special about this illness that you have the authority to grant yourself in this setting? It, it was pretty interesting to listen to that exchange. So I, I felt good about that. I called the board when this all came down and I spoke to the president of the uh, Board of Medical Quality Assurance. She's a lovely woman. She's an attorney. Her dad was a urologist. She is well-meaning. She was reassuring to me. Um, and she, a couple of things she said, I'll tell you in a second, that were not so reassuring, kind of disturbing. But 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 when I put the phone down, after she talked to me for like an hour, she was very, very- uh, This is Christine Lawson. It was Christine Lawson, yeah. She's the defendant in our party case. It, well, she's a lovely <laughs> person. And, and she- uh, I've never the, met her, so I have no personal opinion of her. So I'm here, glad to hear you. When I put the yours. phone down, I thought, oh man, what, what, what happens when she's gone? Who's in there next? And who knows what the hell they do with it? You know what I mean? They, they, giving them that kind of authority, next time it's not Christine Lawson, it's somebody else that God knows how they might misuse that. But in any event, she also said, uh, you know, we already have the authority to do this if we want. I thought, ugh, ugh. Yeah, so they just wanted to make it explicit, I guess, to sh- 
care, buddy. Dr. Drew, why is an attorney the head of the medical board of California? Right. Good and why question. is there a life coach on the board? Well, you know, and then and then she <laughs> kindly she kindly set me up with some of the uh, board members because I wanted to sort of express to them how how difficult it is, you know, when when the when these things come through, you know, when these frivolous, ridiculous complaints come through. And it was it was that was another fascinating conversation because I spoke to they again they were good with their time they were very pleasant they could not understand what responding to these complaints does to us as practitioners mm-hmm. that we have to spend a week and it that it's scary and that we have to bring in a hundred citations and we're defending ourselves against bullshit right. and how, how profoundly disturbing it is. They're like, Oh yeah, just do it. Just, just write it out. You know, just no big deal. If you did anything wrong, uh, it, I, it was, that was really stunning to me. But, you know, again, working all those years in a psychiatric hospital, I had many frivolous complaints, not many, probably four or five and and they were almost always people in an altered state who had a complete distortion of the interaction uh, either you know like a severe dissociative or somebody actively psychotic and what they were reporting just had no relationship with reality and of course the board takes that as serious as anything and you have to pull out the records and, and it's just costly and time consuming and and really takes a piece of your soul from you. Do you think that from your experience now in the last few years, do you think that you have less, the same or more confidence in these institutions than you had five to 10 years ago? I am, well, what do you mean by these institutions? Well, the medical board would be an example of one. Uh, Obviously we've talked about medical care systems as well. not just medicine, but I'm talking about the institutions that underline our society uh, in general. I'm very concerned. I, I, Again, I, I, <laughs> there are literally. Uh, I was having dinner with a, a comedian the other day, and he was he was asking not Adam Carolla, not Adam Carolla, and and he was asking me all these questions, and he was asking about vaccines and this and that. And I said, "Look," he goes, "You're asking me things that that I would have just I would have just gone stop stop it just to get 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 you know don't worry about it." And now when somebody addresses these issues. I'm listening. I'm, I'm all ears. Tell, I, I, I need to re- that when I've seen the distortions of the medical literature, when I've seen the distortions of uh, you know what the employers are doing to the physicians, when I see the delusional psychosis that is that captured our peers, I, I, I it's just I, again, it's just is just it's not it's not eye opening to me. It's astonishing and bewildering. It's bewildering, and that people still have trouble seeing what happened. That's the other part that's bewildering to me. If you rightfully question the efficacy uh, of the COVID vaccine, is it fair to also question the efficacy and safety of all vaccines? I I never would have entertained any of those thoughts, but I'm at least going, okay, well, I'll listen. I'll listen. I'm not, I'm not saying it, you know, I'm, I'm not saying my, my feelings have changed about anything, but I wouldn't even listen to things like that before because, but now I'm listening all of a sudden. And it was talking to RFK Jr. That sort of got me kind of shifted a little bit is like, you know, Jeff as well. He was, he was won over by one talk by RFK Jr. So yeah, he's pretty persuasive. And, and I still, I still worry that I'm getting caught up in something and that I should, you know, stop it. You know, I, I, like, like, you know, I just have my own experience, for instance, with the COVID vaccine. I was telling uh, 
I do this, I do a Wednesday show with Kelly Victory, who's very anti-vaccine. Wonderful. I listened to her every day on John Phillips until they got her off the air because she was creating too much of a ruckus by spreading truth. She, she was on our show, by the way, last year after she got dropped from the show. Wonderful, wonderful. I saw her on your website, so I'm glad you had her on. Yeah, we, we know we have her on every Wednesday. and she oh, every does, week. Yeah, and she some, does some of the more difficult she's great. interviews with me. She is great, and she's introduced me to everybody that's been silenced, and I've learned something from every single one of them. Now, I've not agreed with everything or every one of them, but I've, I've learned something from every single one of them. And um, so what was I saying about... Uh, RFK um, Jr., skeptical of vaccines, Kelly Victory, you described her as being anti-vax. Oh, I, was, I told her today, I said, you know, look, uh, I... I, as you know, I, I am trying to make medical, I'm trying to arrive at a risk reward analysis for my patients. And I believed, but based on the literature I was seeing that for my patients, 75 plus, maybe 65 plus, but definitely 75 plus year olds, the vaccines are worth it. They're worth the risk and I'm going to boost them. And I did it. And they're all, all my patients are vaccinated. That's just, this is me. I'm not saying you should do what I'm doing. I'm saying this was my practice. And along the way, had some very complicated cases. And you know, a guy with resistant TB that developed hepatic failure from rifampin and then got COVID. And I was like, I can't use Paxlovid now in this setting. I'm just not going to do it. But he'd had vaccine and, and two boosts, you know, the series. And I thought, I'm going to use some steroids and just rely on the vaccine. And it worked. So I, it, was, it was a useful instrument, and I've not seen a single adverse event in the elderly. I've seen tons in people in their 30s and 40s. I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's just my series and just a, a statistical anomaly or if there's really something going on there. But I felt like the risk-reward was worth it. I feel like I made the right choice given – my experience across these last couple of years and some of the complexities. And by the way, I say use Paxlovid in a patient with hepatic failure. I've seen lots of Paxlovid rebound too. Lots of it. It's a real thing. Trust me, patients aren't, don't dig it. It, it, it sticks around for a Have while. Have you read the package insert of Paxlovid? Yes. As far as? As far as the studies that brought it to market, the potential side effects, the post-marketing studies that show incredible potential serious side effects. I know there's lots of potential there. I know that's why I'm very cautious with using it these Drew, days. Drew, is it possible that you and I have been fed a bill of goods and be and have been convinced by pharma and vaccine companies over our generation to believe something that just isn't so, that these vaccine companies are immune from all liability? So why do they care? And the amount of money that's in these vaccines, the billions, if not trillions of dollars uh, that are being marketed to the public. I mean, for example... You go into any pharmacy, Rite Aid, Save-On, Walmart, you name it. There's a big poster on the wall of a guy with the worst shingles rash you've ever seen with a, with a, with a uh, sub, subscript that says, don't be this guy. They hand over their Medicare card. They get a shingle vaccine. There's no informed consent. They're not given information about the potential downside, about what actually are the risks of you getting shingles or post-herpatic neuralgia. What are the alternatives? How do we normally treat this if you were to get it? They push out their arm. They get a vaccine. They think nothing of it. And the, and the uh, cash register rings once again for the vaccine company as they're making billions and billions of dollars on the backs of the American people. If you put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not anti-vax. But, 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 
But I, I do think that this issue of capture is, I feel like that was my Gelman amnesia. Yes. Uh, well, this sort of FDA capture, but maybe there's not capture over here on the military. And maybe there's not capture over here in the FBI. And maybe there's, not, there's capture all over the place. Yeah. And other words for capture is corruption. Yeah. And I, I am institutional corruption. Really, you know, if you about. if you go into a, a liquor store and you buy a pack of cigarettes, there's a big sticker on it about cancer risk and so forth. I think there should be a sticker on every vaccine that says, "If you are injured by this product, the company that makes it is immune from all liability." Patients should be told that. Yeah, and, and we should be doing more careful, informed consent um, that we don't, and. You know, it's funny, before all this hit and before we started worrying about all this stuff, I was thinking about a, I I don't know, I I had a particular scene in my head where I was working with a nephrologist and he just told me to do something and I did it. And I thought that then became my practice doing it. It was sort of some Ivy Lasix or something, something very nominal, but I thought I do that all the time. And I, and I thought, I wonder, doesn't that feel a little culty? Yeah. Isn't that a little there, there's a book you should read. It's called Fooled by Randomness. I can't remember the author. And us doctors are susceptible. I have a patient in, I give them, pick your antibiotic. I give them amoxicillin to treat some throat or ear infection. And they have a terrible reaction to it. And I go, holy crap, I'm never going to use that again. Or I have a patient that does fantastic on a particular uh, antibiotic that I prescribe or drug, and I am biased now to think that that N of one, that study of one yeah. person now, can be translated into a, a broader group. The the yes, the the our, our statistical delusions are absolutely for sure. But I was thinking more in terms of how I revered my subspecialty colleagues in authority and how I would follow, 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 and I wouldn't really question anything other than to say, show me the literature, you know, let me read it and see what, you know, where, where these ideas come from. Um, but it's, you know, it's, we need to be careful. And I, it's certainly the centralization of authority and the employing of physicians. This is not getting better. It's getting a lot. We need to rethink a lot of things, including, I believe, this notion that somehow elevated cholesterol causes heart disease and we should aggressively treat it with statins. A trillion dollar business. Yeah. Wow. How about how we use SSRIs? I mean, these are all 100%. things that are standard and yet really require a much more careful Look, you know, and I, I, you look, I, I'm worrying about our profession and I have found myself wanting to apologize on behalf of it. I'm ashamed of how we behave during this thing. And I personally want to apologize on behalf of this profession that my father was a part of, my uncle was a part of. I, I have, it's been such a, a revere, just a critical part of my life and my identity. And, and I'm, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of how we behave during this. I thing. agree. Listen, over the last three years, I've had to, had to unlearn a lot of what I learned in medical school, and I've completely changed my approach to no longer be this disease model. You have a symptom, I have a prescription to make it better uh, to a root cause. What is the cause of this and how can we get it better without a prescription pad with lifestyle, possibly supplements, um, and getting you to take care of you, not looking for big pharma to solve our problems. Well, getting people to change, Mark will tell you, is really hard. <laughs> I, I work in that world of changing well, people. Well, look at you, Drew. Hard. I mean, you changed. What I'm hearing today is, A, you feel accountable for yourself and your profession. B, you have lost the 
depth of faith in many institutions, including that of medicine that you used to have, and are now more than ever open to questioning things that you used to consider closed book cases where I don't even need to be bothered. I, it's already settled for me. Yeah. And you're open to listening to things that you thought were absolutely insane before. You don't agree with them necessarily, but you're open to listening. That, those three things, that speaks volumes about you. And if everybody, doctor or not, were open to those three things, I think our society would move forward at a lightning pace. Well, here is the one of the things that is slowing it down because I'm experiencing it right now as you s said that which is I have to grieve the loss of the profession and the world that I thought I knew and, and loved. And grief is something that humans will do anything to avoid. And so I'm actually kind of good with it because I'm sort of addicted to change. I'm used to the grieving process that goes with change, but most people can't do that. That's why there's whiskey, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> well, grief, it, 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 grief, you, you can, you know, I told Mark I was in therapy for a long time and I, I, um, uh, shoot, what was the theorist? Margaret, what's her name? Uh, she, Not she, Sanger. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> no. You know, there were those, those great psychoanalysts right Margaret after Margaret Atwood. No, God damn it. But anyway, they, she had this thing called the depressive position. Right, that you went, you you were in this depressive position, and and I I came to think about that in an interesting way. I thought, well, that's the that's the grief you feel when you're really changing. You get you get depressed. It's a depressive thing as you move through that because you're you're. It sounds like Melanie Klein. Melanie Klein. It was Melanie Klein. Ah, uh, yes, oh, I studied yes. psychoanalysis for many years, and that sounds like classic Melanie Klein. The depressive position is the more mature place that you go to before you get to actual adult recognition of reality. I was in the depressive position for like five years and I didn't, and I, and I didn't realize it. And I announced it to my therapist. I said, cause I started coming out and I said, I think I've, I think I've been grieving. I think I've been in a depressive position. And, and as I did make it out and look back. Uh, and so now, now I can experience grief sort of fluidly. Now it kind of comes to me when you tell me I'm changing and I'm losing this, you know, this profession I loved and stuff. It's like, yeah, I can, I can feel the grief. I can have it. Well, that's the more advanced stage, Drew. You know what Melanie Klein wrote about that precedes the depressive position? It's the psychotic position. Yes, I know. And that's where most people are right now. That's the denial of reality. That's the hallucination. That's the uh, delusional quality, the, the extreme violent, malicious narcissism. That's psychosis. You have to get through that to get to the depressive position where you can then go to the grief stage. And her view was that it's only through grieving that we can accept and acknowledge reality. That's a narcissistic injury and most people can't support it or sustain it. So you are far along that path further then than most Americans are now because they're still in the psychotic trance state. Yeah. And, and I've noticed that that grieving part is really what keeps people stuck because humans, humans hate grief. They hate it. And it's it's not even the change; it's the grief at losing what was, but you know what's changing loss, the pain you're losing. Yeah, yeah, we avoid pain at all yeah. costs. Well, grief particularly. I mean, and I, you know, you must deal with it, Jeff. You know, we deal with end of life stuff, and think, look what families, look what family members do to keep people alive, just so they don't have to feel the grief and get into that. And uh, it happens all the time. So as we recover from our medical grief of the institution, let's do a show about all the things that we really should be rethinking. And how the profession of medicine should really evolve. Do you guys have? I, I don't, I'm not sure. I know because here's the problem: you're you're fighting a, an economic trend that um, will not allow us to. Oh do no, things like there, that. there is there is a hunger out there, Drew, 
there is a hunger for physicians like you and me and Mark that can think beyond what the traditional mindset has been, what the traditional paradigm, the pharma paradigm, they want to be, they want to be told uh, something different. I agree with that, but whatever, maybe this is, you have to think even broader that whatever we do with that, it would not be the practice of medicine as we knew it in the sense. And let me explain what I'm saying. It's clear to me, are you an internist or your family practitioner? Family family practice, primary care. Okay. It's it's pretty clear to me that they, they, meaning the insurance companies and the government and the resources, want to get rid of us. And they want to have us replaced by nurse practitioners and physician assistants and have us three yard, you know, 300 yards back supervising 20 of them, which is impossible, uh, cannot possibly be done safely and uh, with quality. But that that is clearly what they're aiming for. Um, and as long as that is marching along, I, I don't know, that, that scares me. Because then if you're, now think about it. So now you're a new physician and you want to decide what field you're going into. You're not going into this nope. field. No. Nope. You're not doing it unless you have to. Like you're not talented and you, you no, know. No, but I'm, can't, look can't through the lens of, the, of a patient. Um, they're, no, they're no longer looking at people like you and I for health advice. They don't trust us anymore. Not you and me, but in general. And so now, now they're going more and more to the natural path, to the chiropractor, yeah. to the yeah. homeopath, yeah. or to somebody yeah. like you and I that have stood up and announced, we're no longer going to do it the way we've always done it. We don't believe in that anymore. And we're looking for a new path. And we want to bring those patients along with us. And, and let me, I, you know, although I, I'm with you on that in the sense that I'm thinking in that area and I'm interested in that area, the reality is because I'm doing a lot of geriatric care, I'm still dealing with sick people. And and I'm doing it the way I've always done it. To be fair, but I'm doing it with I careful. Do. Me thought, too. I thought. made a house call just today. COPD patient. He's 83 years old. He's housebound, and we reviewed his medication list. I took him off his statin. He doesn't need that statin. Um, I took him. I took him off several of the medications that he's on that I think may be doing him more harm than good. Reassured him, hugged him, told him I'd see him back in a couple of weeks. That's what they want. They want to know that we care, care about them, and are there for them and when they need our help. Well, that part is being expunged from the practice. And, and by the way, back to Mark's the part role in this, you know, the practice of attunement and empathy. I mean, that's a that's a that's a highly specialized skill set. Listening with your whole body. We are not. We are certainly not training newcomers to do that. The chiropractors are being trained to do that. The natural paths are being trained to do that, and we're and we're going to put ourselves out of business if we keep doing what we've always done. We're being trained to introduce ourselves and ask uh, what your pronouns are, and that's that's literally what they're training medical students to do and testing them on on the board exams now. So we're screwed if if we can't reform these institutions. Now, obviously, we're not in that now; we're way past it. So we can practice as we wish if we're willing to express the courage. I'm worried about the next generation. Because they're going to be so brainwashed into political ideology and indoctrination and obeisance to the state that eventually, by the time they even get out to practice, they're going to be so captured slash corrupt that they're not even going to, they don't even know what to grieve because it was never with them. It's like the kids that day that they grow up not really grieving the loss of books because they were brought up with a cell phone, like in the womb. How do you grieve something that you never experienced? Right. I, 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 I'm, 
And then, you know, the thing that's got me going lately is the, the lack of, you know, let me, let me test you with something on you, Mark, is that I'm giving a talk to the, um, a big county, bunch of county groups. And I, and I, one of the things I wanted to emphasize is, you know, when I look at all the stuff, the policies coming out of counties and cities, it's always like, we're going to get a mental health counselor to take care. No, no, <laughs> we need doctors. This is a, this is a brain crisis. These are brain diseases, serious mental illnesses out of control. Social workers, counselors, psychologists, great. We need them to do their thing. That's not what's needed at the moment. We are way too far downstream. We don't need ambassadors. We need police. We don't need social service directors. We need psychiatrists and doctors. Yes. Yes. And turning everybody into these peons of the state rather than specialists trained in their field to exert force, whether that's medical force or police force, that's what we need to corral this population, all population, those who are sick, those who are mentally ill, those who are drug addicted, those who are... Uh, urinating on the floor, holding a knife to the throat of a young woman on the metro. We don't need someone to stand there with an iPad and give them directions. We don't need that anymore. I don't know if you heard, but today, just today, the court in Los Angeles finally admitted and agreed and approved that the recall petition for our horrible, horrific, evil, disgusting, despicable individual Attorney General of Los Angeles, District Attorney George Gascon, is valid. It is a valid recall. And as soon as it's approved by the court, they're going to have this guy on the recall ballot, probably in March of 2024. I bet it doesn't pass. Well, that's another I question. Trust, I don't trust the voters in California. I don't trust them. I don't either. Smart. I just, it's, it just seems so again, confusing to me. I just, it's one thing to not trust the institutions. I lost confidence in those a long time ago most of it. Now I've lost all of it. But what I did lose, and I'm still grieving, back to the grief thing, this is something that was new to me. I have lost confidence and faith in my fellow man, meaning the population, not individuals. I still love and laud individuals, but I don't believe that the general population is informed enough, ethical enough, courageous enough, and not you know narcissistic enough to be able to actually do the right thing, broadly speaking, in most places in this country, especially urban America, and in particular, California. I've lost faith in that. And that I grew up, I was born and raised here, born at St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica, raised in Westchester. I spent most of my life here. And I always knew it was imperfect. You know, it's crazy. You got crazy narcissists and entertainment actors and rich people. And it, it's a mess, but it was always kind of like a sweet mess. I really liked it. And, and I, I look at it very differently now because I really don't have confidence in the Los Angelinos that surround me. I think that they are 80% of them are completely fool. They're just, they're idiots. I mean, I still see them. I just saw them on the driving home. I saw a woman driving, driving past me in her car with a mask on. I'm sorry, but if, if you're doing that kind of crap, you don't have my respect as a human being. I don't consider you to be worth my time. And those are the people that are voting, those idiots. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little worked up right now because here's the anger coming out as you're saying. I get angry. I get angry because of that. I'm going to shut up. Now. <laughs> so let's end on let's There's end on a happy note, shall we? <laughs> so what's uh what's the rest of the summer have in store for uh, Dr. Drew? Where where are you in Orange County, by the way, Jeff? Uh, I practice uh, in Newport Beach. And you guys know uh, Aaron Cariotti, of course. Yep, okay. I know him very well. We've had him on our show. Okay, so sh there is a one 
brief shining moment <laughs> and, and Aaron Cariotti. So let's uh, rally behind him. Indeed. Uh, Indeed. He uh, is. And by the way, it was a young psychiatric resident that referred him to me in the first place. And so there also there's that, that young man. I've, I've got my eye on him. So there's some, some glimmer of hope out there. We need to build upon. Well, there there is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a glimmer of hope in individuals. Your, yes, with yourself as well. You're you've woken up. You've changed your perspective. You're open to ideas that you weren't open before. And I think that says something not not just for you, but for all of us. And uh, I I think that's excellent. And that's that's the kernel of hope that I think we would like to see grow in the future for sure. Yeah, just get everybody thinking. Don't don't um, fall in line. Don't think just, for yourself. Think for yourself. Yeah. yeah. As, Freedom. Thoreau said, think for yourself or others will think for you and they will not be thinking of you. The last line in my first book. So good luck with your grief. I hope you get over it soon. <laughs> and I hope yeah. the colonoscopy turned out well. Colonoscopy went fine. They gave me a little too much. Uh, Go lightly. Propofol. Propofol. Yeah. And so, she, you know, I, I hate it when doctors are, you know, doing, they do special things for you because you're a peer. Yeah. Or they, <laughs> you're, you're, I'm always like, no, just do what you normally do. Use your, do your 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 standard of care is a standard for a reason. It's the best. And she goes, yeah, for the upper endoscopy, I'm gonna give you a, get a little heavy so you don't feel anything. I thought, and I thought to myself, I've never felt anything during an upper endoscopy. Sure enough, I'm screwed up all weekend. <laughs> <laughs> but now I, I feel better. Anyway, I have, I have Lynch syndrome, so I have to do that every year. Yeah. So it's good time. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, listen, Dr. Drew Pinsky, <laughs> thank you for coming on Informed Dissent. Thanks for coming it's really on. It's been an honor. We, we appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics. <laughs>